Today's podcast is sponsored by Artifacts, A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S. Artifacts helps you to capture and preserve the memories, stories, and histories behind the objects you collect and accumulate in life, from family heirlooms, recipes, and old photos to travel mementos, art, and collections. Start your free collection today at artifacts.com or download the app. That's A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S dot com. Welcome to the September 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. In our featured interview today, we're going to be talking with Denise May Levenick on the very important topic of how to pass on your genealogy research and what to include in your genealogy will. Then in our family history home segment, the photo detective Maureen Taylor is here to help you learn more about your family photos from the clues that they contain. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode is sponsored by Artifacts, and Ellen Goodwin, co-founder and CSO of Artifacts, is here to tell us more about it. In our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, we're going to be visiting the Library of Congress and digging into the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Collection. And then we're going to wrap things up over at the editor's desk with digital editor Melina Papadopoulos to learn more about the latest updates at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. As always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is some tree talk. Family Tree Magazine's social media editor, Rachel Christian, has her pulse on what's trending in the world of genealogy, and she's here to share that with us now. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I always love starting off these uh, episodes talking to you because you kind of give us the latest things that are happening. So what caught your eye this month? Yes. So um, one thing that's caught my eye this month is last week, um, Find My Past released a new tool, well, new for them, called Tree Search. And basically what it is, it's what it sounds like. It allows you to search other users' family trees for common ancestors and then add that data to your own tree. So that's, you know, a feature that other websites have, but Find My Past just released it. So I noticed that when we shared the news, people responded with a lot of hesitancy um, because I think, you know, if you've done genealogy for any amount of time online, you know that there are not all family trees are um, perfectly researched and documented, shall we say. So um, we got a lot of comments about not so sure this is a good thing. I mean, how are people going to know what information is good? This will just contribute to the many tr- family trees out there that aren't entirely factual. So it reminded me of an article that we ran in our JanFeb issue of this year, and it is Seven Steps to Fact Check Online Family Trees. And that's what it deals with. That's all it talks about is a systematic way to go through information that you find in other people's online family trees and evaluate its credibility, basically, in kind of a formulaic way. So, you know, the first thing you want to do is look at logical improbabilities. I mean, does this tree have children being born before their parents? Does it have ancestors (laughs) existing in wildly different places at the same time? Um, Does it have people you know, buying and selling property after their death date, that kind of thing. So that's one step that the article mentions. 
Um, other things are, you know, just genealogy best practices, like looking for citations, you know, are people putting where they got this information? And can you then follow that to evaluate it for yourself? Um, the same goes for, you know, just linked sources in general. Do people add linked sources? And if so, are they the appropriate source to link? So if people are at all interested in that, I can put a link to the show notes. And I'll also put a link to Find My Past announcement um, about tree search. But it was a good it was a good reminder, I think, for all of us that, you know, other people's family trees are great places to find clues and, and leads that you might research, but they're by no means infallible. So we should all, you know, resist that temptation to add new information we find without taking a close look at it first. Good advice indeed. In fact, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, trees are always great sources for clues, you know, leads to, to think about and to pursue. Wouldn't it be nice if all of these genealogy companies had a special like little yellow badge that you don't add it like you add a birth yeah. record that's a proven evidence, but it's a little badge that says, this came from a tree. Here's And call it clue. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. They could all be marked clue. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to say something like that to kind of differentiate um, somebody else's ideas and theories from actual record evidence. Mm. Yeah, that's a what good you idea. Think? You know what it reminds <laughs> me of is um, like if you're on Airbnb and some people have a little badge that says super host, you know, this yes! person is known for doing good, good work on Airbnb. So yeah, wouldn't that be great? Oh, if they had I like it. Badge. Rachel and Lisa need to revamp. The tree evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, coming soon. Coming soon. Yeah, coming soon. Well, well, this is great. And coming to the show notes will be a link to the article so that all of you listening can go fact check those trees that you find. Rachel, great. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next month. Thanks, Lisa. Have you ever wondered how you're going to pass on your research? And in a sense, could you have a genealogy will? Well, Denise May Levinick has been thinking about this, and she's been writing about it, and she's here to tell us more. Hi, Denise. Hi, Lisa. Nice to talk with you on this important subject. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you've been writing about it and thinking about it because uh, I talk to lots of different genealogists, and it's definitely on people's minds, but there's often a lot of confusion about what exactly we should be doing, isn't there? Right. And just like we make our plans for our whole estate, it's important to think about our genealogy work. It's, you know, it's more than our hobby. It's really an important part of the legacy that we leave our family. So it's it's a good idea to think ahead and make some will or estate plans for your genealogy work. I find that the biggest thing for most people is that they are maybe unsure of family members that will want their information. And just like with your estate plan, it's a good idea to talk to your family about your genealogy. And I encourage people not to be discouraged if right now your younger children may be busy with their families and their own careers. They don't seem enthusiastic about inheriting all your binders or uh, flash drives full of information. You know, things change as we get older, and they may be very, very keen to know more about their ancestors by the time that you pass on. So, um, one of- Very true. Things can change, can't they? (laughs) Oh, they sure can. They sure can. All it takes is a little spark, 
to get interested, you know, maybe a trip on Boston's Freedom Trail and finding out that you've got a Revolutionary War ancestor, um, just like my grandsons did recently. My goodness, now they're they're like really kind of into that. (laughs) How nice. How nice. So when people decide, you know, yes, they do want to take some steps here and perhaps, you know, get things ready to go, even like you said, if they don't know exactly yet who might even be interested in pursuing genealogy in the future, um, how do they get started? What do you recommend? Well, first, just get a piece of paper and kind of get organized. It's good to see on paper the extent of what you have genealogy-wise. And think about it in um, kind of categories, just like you think about your your home. Think about the data that you have accumulated, the raw information. Um, you may have original research that you've copied from courthouses, or maybe it's all in your computer now. You probably have some uh, written reports, maybe documents. And then you have those family keepsakes like photos and papers things like that that are important that you want to pass on to somebody. Your genealogy books or, um, you know, county histories and technology tools. Sometimes we invest a bit of money in um, computers and hard drives and all that stuff. So get organized, know what you've got, then start thinking about who might be able to use that in the future. And this is where the genealogical codicil comes into play. Uh, We've heard of wills, and we've worked with them in our genealogy. We've worked with the last will and testament of people. But a codicil is more of an addendum to a will, and it's something anybody can make up. Anyone can do this on your own. Although the attorney I spoke with said it's a good idea to work with an attorney to make sure it's legal, if you want it to be legally binding. Some people just prefer to have an informal document. Um, a codicil is just a, a, a way of saying, this is important to me, and we have a copy, a sample of it, in the January-February issue of Family Tree Magazine, where my article appears in full. Um, I'll just read you a little bit of it. It says, upon my demise, I do hereby request... You do not dispose of any or all of my research and genealogical materials prepared personally by me or prepared by others, which may be in my possession, including, and you name a few things, and you say how long you want them to keep it. Maybe you want them to keep it intact for two years or one year, and then you can list who you want things to go to. Uh, You might have a local genie society that would like all your books or a friend. And you might want your documents and histories, if if you know like a cousin would continue your research, you might want them to be contacted. So this is the place to put their names and their contact numbers. Just make it easy, easy, easy for your family. They're going to be dealing with so much that they will appreciate knowing your wishes. Believe me, I've been in that place. <laughs> A lot of us have. Sounds like you're really recommending that they you eliminate a lot of the guesswork and just make it clear so it's it's easier for somebody to step in later and take care of things. Definitely. What you don't want to have happen is your heirs have to clean out a house plus figure out what to do with your things. Exactly. Even if they just put it in boxes and you say, wait six months 
you know, help them out. It's so sad when we see this kind of stuff that ends up in an estate sale. And I've been there. I've, I've been called in to clean up genealogy materials that were left that an estate uh, sale person was like, what do I do with this? And we know it's valuable, but the family didn't care for it. So it's up to you to do something. And that's so sad. And that happens to a lot of the physical stuff. But I, I love that in your article, you also address there's digital stuff, stuff we don't really see, <laughs> but it's digital and it's so important. Talk a little bit about that because I know we're all dealing with that. Well, I think it's wonderful now. So many people are connecting on social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, but particularly Facebook. They have family sites and they post pictures. That's all so great. And did you know that Facebook has kind of a um, legacy program? That's. I just think it's really cool that you can go in, uh, like search for memorialization or deceased. And there's a way to make a legacy contact through Facebook so that when you pass away, someone else can easily manage that account and won't have to go through a lot of hoops like presenting death certificates and things. Of course, if you just leave your password and username, people can take care of that even easier. But we don't always, you know, we change passwords, so we don't always think about that. <laughs> That's really good to know. And I suppose you could certainly list all of your different accounts and passwords, maybe even as part of the codicil. Sure, sure. That's a good place to put it. Um, all in one place. Just be very, be as organized as you can. Keep things together and put a copy with your estate papers. Leave a copy with your genealogy papers because sometimes the estate papers go to the trust or trustee or um, another family member. So leave some copies around. Goodness, we're good at photocopying, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. We certainly are. And, you know, we've been talking about how to pass on our research. And I encourage everybody listening to check out Denise May Levenick's new online article. So this was published back in February of 2022. And that's where you find the entire article, plus the, the copy of the codicil that she was talking about. But you can also read this article online. It's called How to Pass on Research and What to Include in Your, quote, Genealogy Will. Denise, thank you so much for helping us prepare a bit for the future. You're welcome, and I uh, hope we don't need it for a long time. Our sponsor for this episode is Artifacts.com, and here to tell us more about it is Ellen Goodwin, the co-founder and CSO of Artifacts. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Hi, Lisa. Well, everybody has heirlooms and mementos uh, around their home, and that's especially true, I think, for family historians. Um, what is Artifacts, and how can it help us with these precious items? You know, you're right. We have all of these things hiding in plain sight. And what I mean by hiding is there's one thing that's the object, but there's the second thing that's the memory or the story or the history that's locked inside that, that's represented by the object. So we created artifacts.com where we have this website and app. And the entire idea is to capture the story and the memories behind these objects so that they can live on. And we can pass along these memories and stories and not just 
stuff, so to speak. And, and we do this with each artifact, allowing people to both capture the image of the object, but also the audio or video, if you would so choose, as well as any documentation you might have related to it. And we think this is really important to give people that 360 view of something. This is not just a photo. Photos actually can't talk, uh, not yet anyway. Um, it's not just a photo. This is a photo of a person, and here's what was going on, and here's who it is that's relevant to you. Terrific. So it's really an opportunity to kind of catalog, as well as kind of prompts us, I think, to to capture our memories. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, as you create each of your artifacts, you develop this private collection. And and from there, it's really up to you. We think there's a lot of value in story sharing, whether that's with specific individuals in your life, your whole family, even publicly. We have folks uh, over on artifacts who will create an artifact and they'll share it into a collector's group or a research group. You know, maybe somebody's looking at the history of a particular region in the United States. And they'll create an artifact and they'll tell their story, their family lore about this object, but they'll share it into a group and, and they kind of commiserate around this and say, oh, I had something like this and I was trying to find this out. So it really creates this sense of we're all in this together. And in the words of one user, it, it, it can become this museum to humanity. It unites us around the stories behind the objects. Well, if people want to give this a try and get started, tell us how we find artifacts and how we get started. Finding artifacts, we were just joking before we started that, you know, artifacts.com minus that second A, we like to say we're redefining artifacts. It's something that's special and meaningful to you. And so go to artifacts.com without that second A in the word artifacts or download our app for Android or Apple. And you can create up to five artifacts for free. We want you to try it out. We want you to share these artifacts with others and gain that experience. And, you know, if you like it, we have a couple different membership options. And we also offer concierge services. We'll come into your homes and help you get started or do a virtual session. Okay. Well, everybody listening can go and visit artifacts.com, A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S.com. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. If you have old photos that aren't labeled, there's still a lot that you can learn from them about when and where they were taken. And in today's Family History Home segment, Maureen Taylor, who is also known as the photo detective, is here to tell us how old hats and fashion can provide clues. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you here, my friend. And, you know, I was just looking over your article. Uh, it's called Finding Photo Clues in Historical Hat Styles. And of course, that's on FamilyTreeMagazine.com. And I was fascinated how much we can learn from fashions worn by our ancestors in photographs. And I know this is your expertise. So let's start at the top of the head. What can we learn from hats? Oh, well, you can tell something about a woman, well, if it's a woman's hat, their sense of style. How stylish are they? Are they wearing a young woman's hat or an older woman's hat? Because there were, was a difference. You know, women of a certain age wore hats intended for them as well as clothing intended for them. It's not like today where everyone shops and it's pretty much all the same clothing. Then you learn something about sometimes economic status. 
How fancy is the hat? How decorated is the hat? What have they paired it with? This particular photograph that we're talking about that's on Family Tree Magazine is, I mean, everyone is my favorite, but this is my current favorite because it's a group (laughs) of women of, uh, it's probably two generations of women, and it appears to be maybe a bridal shower. So everyone is dressed to the nines with, you know, all their finery, little first stoles, and they're out on somebody's porch. And it's just fabulous because you get to see the shoes and everyone's sense of style. They're all wearing a different dress. It's it's just one of those special photographs. And I noticed that there are many different hat styles in it. And I imagine that that to a certain extent, in addition to maybe the age of the woman and what she is selecting, this is going to tell us something about the time frame. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So every season, fall and spring, uh, and even, I guess, winter, there were a variety of hats that came out. It could be hundreds of hats every season, you know, your Easter bonnet kind of thing. And you could go to a department store and buy a hat. You could go to a milliner and have a hat. And I have a, a, photograph in my collection, my research collection, which is a group of, I believe it's eight young women. And three of them have the same base hat, but they've decorated it differently. So perhaps they've all gone to the same milliner, but decided to personalize their look. But of course, still staying with, we're part of her group. Exactly. I I love that. I was was just watching... I was just watching the Pride and Prejudice and they were talking about buying a hat and then tearing it apart to rebuild it. <laughs> so that would be very common, right? To kind of update your hat as seasons go on and years go on. Yeah. I mean, I've had photographs come across my desk where it's uh, women who can't necessarily afford the most up-to-date dress, but the hat on their head is definitely something to update their look. Now, in this photograph on the Family Tree Magazine site for this Finding Photo Clues in um, Historic Hats, there is a pair of twins in this photograph. And what's really interesting about them is they are wearing basically the same hat, except the trim is different. Interesting. That's how they kind of differentiated themselves a little bit. And let's Mm -hmm. talk about the fashion, because like you said, uh, they're all dressed to the nines. And and we might see photographs where people are dressed very casually or uh, very formally or somewhere in between. What can we glean from that? And should we assume the economic status of a person? Or did people, when they got in front of the camera, dress in their best regardless? Well, there's a common misconception conception, which is my ancestors couldn't possibly have owned a dress this stylish because they really didn't have any any money. They were laborers or farmers. And in fact, it was part of making your family look their best so that the women in the household often dressed in something nice, something they might have seen in a fashion magazine, something they might have made for themselves. Now, I'm not saying that all farmers' wives dressed in contemporary fashion. Some of it is fashion for, you know, what what their daily life was like. You're not going to clean your house in a very foofy dress with lots of trim and fancy shoes. You're going to wear something a little more down to earth and basic for that kind of task. So our fashion for women especially tells us something about 
how they feel about the current fashion. And similarly today, you know, if you go to the mall and you walk through the stores, you see a whole range of fashion. Although they don't have this sort of, I don't don't want to say this, mature section, (laughs) which is where women of a certain age would dress with some of the same style, but not necessarily as youthful looking as the young women's styles. Think of it in terms of young women were husband hunting for the most part. And then for men, let's talk about men's hats for a minute. So Mm -hmm. men's clothing is very specific. It tells you something about what they were doing for work, for instance. It tells you something about when they lived. You know, it's head-to-toe fashion from shoes to hats to the shape of sleeves and lapels and everything else for men and women and even children. Um, You actually asked... You actually asked a question, and I went off on a tangent. You wanted to know, oh, in men's clothing, you know, they dress for the job a lot of times. So in the 1860s, for instance, a man in a suit, um, a very particular type of suit, might be broadcasting the type of education he had and the type of job that he had. But you asked about people dressing up for their portraits. And yes, you would wear your Sunday best. I mean, there are photographs of people who went right from work, you know, laborers all dusty from working. Um, I'm thinking of one that I really love, which are guys that I think are laying cobblestones and they come into the studio and they're completely dirty and they have their tools in hand. Uh, But mostly you are trying to look your best in the photograph and that's your Sunday best. Now it might be your funeral and wedding suit that a man is wearing and it's not necessarily the latest style. Um, but for women particularly, they want to look their best. They're representing their family. Yeah, that's a great point. And I imagine everything from collars to hem lengths to sleeve length could tell us even more about what the time frame was. What kind of resources would we turn to if we wanted to compare the fashion that we're looking at in a photograph? Would we go look at like an old Sears catalog or, or what would you suggest? I love the Sears catalog. So, I mean, you, we had Sears catalogs when we were growing up. You know, the Christmas wish yeah. book, of course, that we'd pour over yes. hour upon hour. But the Sears catalog is on the Ancestry.com website. The tricky thing about researching it is it works best if you can browse uh, season and year but you can do a search for particular types of hats. But all these hats had names. So you need to try to figure out from fashion encyclopedias or doing a Google search what some of these named hats might be. Especially in the 1860s, there are all these cute names for hats. And then there are straw hats for the summer and plush hats for the winter. So you can tell something about what season it is. Exactly. I was just thinking when you were saying talking about searching on the hat is uh, we can use a, the Google app now and use the Google lens. And if you kind of zoom in on the hat and take the picture with the lens, it'll search and very likely tell you exactly what kind of hat that is. So yeah. it's amazing how many tools it's we have the, available the to The tools us. we have. Technology is exactly. our friend sometimes. Well, I love it. I know that you specialize in helping people kind of look through very carefully their photographs and find these kinds of unique clues. Where can people learn more about what you do and get in touch with you? They can go to my website, MaureenTaylor.com, or they can find me online. I'm pretty much everywhere as the photo detective. One caution for looking at fashion is 
not everyone dressed in the absolute latest styles. So just tread carefully when you do your research. And I'm here for a resource if you need help. Excellent. Excellent. Well, wonderful advice. So fun. I encourage everybody to go over and take a look at this fabulous photograph that we've been discussing. It is at familytreemagazine.com and we'll have this specific link to that page in our show notes. Wonderful to talk to you, Maureen. So good. Thank you so much. Wonderful to talk to you too, Lisa. In our best websites for genealogy research, we are going to be talking about Sanborn fire insurance maps. Now, these are available at the Library of Congress, and here to tell us more about them is Julie Stoner. She's a reference specialist at the Geography and Map Division at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much, Lisa. Happy to be here. What are Sanborn fire insurance maps? The Sanborn fire insurance maps are a uniform series of large-scale maps Um, They date starting from about 1867, though they mainly start in the 1880s, and they run mostly through the 1950s, though there are some of a later date as well. And it was a company that was started by a man named D.A. Sanborn, and he was drawing these maps at a building level to sell to fire insurance companies so that they could then assess how much to charge people for the fire risk of their building. And now, of course, we use them for a lot more things today, um, than they were necessarily originally intended for, but they because they show um, the building level details of a city. Um, we have over 12,000 cities and towns represented. Um, some smaller towns may only have a few sheets, but the larger cities may have multiple, multiple volumes. And they would go back and create a new map every 10, 15 years or so. So you can really see how a city changed over time and the buildings that changed over time and how a neighborhood was built basically and they're used they can be used for a variety of all sorts of things now yeah that's a great description i love the fact that that has such detail and these are really unique there really aren't any other maps quite like these are there uh it's true we do have um other maps like real estate atlases and things like that of maybe a few cities um, here and there, like uh, D.C. or New York, um, we have land ownership houses, but nothing of quite this scale or detail. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about the scale of the map collection. You have, of course, at the Library of Congress, the entire map collection. Then there's the collection that we can access online. So tell us a little bit about what is the scope of it and does it vary whether we're online or in person? Sure. Yeah, it does vary um, a bit because of copyright restrictions. So as I said, we have about 12,000 different cities and towns represented, and that equals over 700,000 map sheets. And so that's a, that's a lot of sheets um, of maps. And a few years ago, the library, um, in conjunction with a third party, um, took on a project to scan all of the public domain Sanborn maps and public domain Uh, means that there are no copyright restrictions on those maps. So that included anything published before 1922 at that point, and then anything published before 1964 in which the copyright wasn't renewed. And so um, the library took on this project to scan all those, and so those are all scanned. Those are all online on our website and can be downloaded. That copyright date is now a rolling date, so there are now maps between 1923 and 1926 that are public domain that we haven't scanned yet, and we are working to get those scanned, to get those online. And and as soon as new maps come into the public domain, we hope to have a process to then 
um, upload those when that happens. So a very large chunk of the Sanborn maps are online, but if they are not, you can always come and see them in person as well because we do have the physical copies. You mentioned that the part of the collection that is in the public domain is available online and they're yeah. downloadable. Are those pretty high resolution maps? So we'll be able to use those in some of our own genealogy projects. For sure. They are definitely um, high resolution. So the library scans them at the highest resolution um, that we can. And so there's there's actually a, ver- a variety of um, files that you can download. So you have JPEG images, um, which are a bit lower, but are good for like maybe PowerPoints or computer screens. Um, and then you have our TIFF files, which are the largest high resolution files, which if you want to print it at size, you could do so using those uh, TIFF files. So I know that uh, the online collection, which I think most of our folks would be interested in accessing from home easily, is at the Library of Congress, the loc.gov website. And um, I have here an address that says here slash collection slash Sanborn dash maps. So tell us a little bit about what we'll find there on the website. Sure. That link that you said is um, a landing page for our digital images, a research guide that we have that is about our fire insurance maps in general, um, not just the Sanborn, because there are a few other companies, though Sanborn took those over in, um, in time, they became pretty much the only one. Um, but there's a large section on the left of the research guide that says Sanborn Fire Insurance Company Maps. And if you click on that, you will find a number of links to help you with your research of the Sanborn Fire Insurance Company Maps. And I wanted to point out that to find the maps, the easiest way under this Searching for Sanborn Maps tab, you will see um, some information, including a link to our Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Checklist. And this is the easiest way to find the maps that you're looking for. And here are Fire Insurance Map Index. And this is the easiest way to search for maps. It's so large that it can be a little overwhelming. So this checklist um, is taken from a 1981 publication done by the library that lists all of the Sanborn maps that we have in our collection. Now, while the library has the largest collection of Sanborn maps um, in the world, we do not claim to have every one ever made. Um, We are missing some. If you say found one in your historical study that is not on this list, it just means that we don't have it in our physical collection, not that it doesn't exist. But you can search by state. So if you click under US state on the drop down menu, you'll find all the states Um, and you can scroll through and pick your state. I live in Virginia, I was born here, so uh, let's search for Virginia. And then you are gonna see this list um, of hyperlinks with all of the cities available with Sanborn maps in the collections. So you can scroll through and click on the city of interest. For example, if you wanna click on Richmond, this is the list of Richmond maps here at the library. And it's a table. And on the far left, you will see the date of the volume. And then you will see the number of sheets in that volume. Other geographic areas included, sometimes in larger cities, um, the Sanborn Map Company would pick some areas farther outside the city to include in that volume a few sheets. So for example, Manchester or South Richmond in this case. The comments is mostly about the physical binding of the maps here at the library. And then it has the website. So if you click on the link, it'll take you to the digital images. 
And just one other note about the date. Um, if you look at the date, sometimes it can look a little confusing because you have two dates on here. So for example, volume one, 1924 through April, 1950. So what ha what's happening here is that starting in the mostly the 40s and 50s, the Sandbar Map Company decided it was faster uh, instead of making an entirely new map to cut and paste over an old map. So this 1924 date is the base of the map, and then the 1950 date is the last time that they updated it. So it's really showing a 1950 era Richmond, um, but they're just using that base map of 1924. So if we click on the link, for example, to the 1886 Richmond maps, it'll take you here to the digital images. And then if we click on them, um, uh, we were talking about downloading them. If you click on an image, you will see in the center of the screen the map that you can scroll in and out of. And then at the bottom, underneath, you will see this download link. There are several JPEG images, a GIF file, and then the high-resolution TIFF that you can then download to your computer and use. Um, we're, we're very happy that mo a lot of these are now online for researchers to use from outside of Washington, D.C. Well, before I let you go, I mean, you are the guru when it comes to the Sanborn fire insurance maps and, and these collections over the Library of Congress. Anything else that we should really know about or look for as we're working with these? That's a good question. Um, first, I want to say that we always welcome questions um, to our division. So we have, it's called Ask a Librarian. Um, on the left of the research guide or on our main Library of Congress homepage, there's a link that says Ask a Librarian. And you're welcome to send us in any questions um, that you have um, that we haven't answered on our research guide or that you're confused about. We're always happy to answer questions. Um, the Sanborn maps are a fantastic resource for doing genealogy, uh, for finding out more about the town you lived in and the buildings that were there, the types of buildings. A lot of the buildings will say like what was in them. For example, like this was a candy shop or a hat shop or um, whatnot. And so they're, they're a great resource to just find out more about your town. And there's always more to learn. Julie Stoner, thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Well, it's time to wrap up this episode at the editor's desk. And this month, Family Tree Magazine's digital editor, Melina Papadopoulos, is here. Hi, Melina. Hi, Lisa. So, hey, what have you been up to in your new role there at Family Tree Magazine? Yeah, I've definitely been busy here. This month, I've been working on updating some of our landing pages and curating some of our great content we already have on the website. And, and some of that content pertains to land records and maps. So what I've been doing for the land records page has been curating some of our content about where to find land records, how to read them, how to analyze them, as well as some resources that you can find online or by um, going to the library, you know, some great books you might be able to read and just putting those in a place where people who might have an ancestor who lives somewhere um, that they are unfamiliar with, that they know where to go so they can find those records and research them and get the information they need. And I also made sure to... Um, curate some of our freebies that are um, very helpful for that. One in particular helps genealogists look at and record information they find on any deeds they find, you know, information that they might find useful to record and to put in their own records. We also have a download that can help them identify land states and where to find different things in different states and where to go to um, get those records. 
And to go along with the land records, I also have been working on a section about maps. And that kind of goes through all the different kinds of maps that help genealogists. There are so many. Maps are a great tool because they're visual. They have keys. They break down so much great information into a visual aid that you can easily look at and say, oh, yeah, that's what that is. And genealogists can easily pull that information and use it to their advantage. And some examples of map resources are things like the Sanborn maps, different websites to find maps, of course, like David Rumsey. And just, again, great resources that just can really help genealogists find what they're looking for as they're trying to track down their ancestors. Oh, boy, it sounds terrific. And it's right in line with what we've been talking about uh, exactly. in this episode. Yes. So to find this content, people go to familytreemagazine.com. Yeah. And I know we have a little like a search exactly. uh, icon, like a magnifying glass icon. Is that the best place? Do we just go there and search for maps? Or is there somewhere in the menu we should go to? Yeah, so to find it easily in the menu, you can go to explore by topic, and then record types, and then land will we'll be right there. You can click on that. And it'll take you right to the page with the land records and the, I, the section about maps. And I'll also put it in the show notes so that you can easily access it. Oh, perfect. Great. We'll, we'll send folks off from this episode with lots of wonderful resources to dig into. Yeah. Well, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Wonderful to talk to you too, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so glad you joined me for this September 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. As always, I'll have some links for you over at the show notes webpage to all the things that we discussed today. And you can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And of course, if you're listening on a podcast app like uh, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, if you do us a big favor and leave us a real nice review. We would so appreciate that. You can also stay in touch with Family Tree Magazine by subscribing to the free email newsletter. It's the best way to keep up to date on everything going on here at the magazine. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you'll find the Genealogy Gems podcast and the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.